This evening at The Book Collector, we are going to binge on a remarkable man called Cyril Wilkinson, who lived between 1888 and 1960. In brief, he was a soldier, a cold streamer. You may sometimes see him referred to as Colonel Wilkinson, a distinguished student of English literature, and for most of his adult life, a fellow of Worcester College, Oxford. Not mentioned in Nicholas Barker's obituary of him, is his preeminence as an eccentric, a line of country in which England still excels. When not at Oxford, his home was at a house called Salt Grass, overlooking the Solent. There he did little except potter around in his garden, read his books, and entertain his students. It is for his swimming expeditions that he was noted locally, for he would swim, and I quote, in a remarkable and noticeable costume, which he had acquired from a barmaid at Amiens. I will now read Nicholas Barker's obituary, which was printed in The Book Collector in 1966. To follow, I will read Wilkinson's essay, entitled A Small Collection at Oxford, first printed in The Book Collector in 1956. Cyril Hackett Wilkinson, 16th of November, 1888, to 19th of January 1960. It is a commonplace that it is not the mere acquisition of books that makes a book collector, nor yet the quantity or quality of a collection. You often hear a distinction drawn between a collection made for a man and one he has made himself, but that is not the end of the story. What is it, for example, that makes one draw back from the vast Huth collection while its sale catalogue remains a much-used work of reference? From the Heber collection, by contrast, will attract attention even when the book itself may not. Yet, though Lewis may be preferred to Riviere, the Heber catalogue serves more to tantalise than to inform. Again, while the discriminating taste of Frederick Locker Lampson and Richard Jennings exercised great influence on their contemporaries, there is something frigid about the quintessential exclusivity of the Rofant Library, which the Jennings copy does not convey. It is, in fact, the man that matters, not the collection, nor any feature of it. And if any collector of recent times had this gift of arousing a sympathetic attraction across the year, it was surely Colonel Wilkinson. It is six years since he died, and his memory is now kept green by a little book published by the Oxford University Press, which contains an affectionate memoir by Roger Fulford, with reprints of Provost Masterman's memorial address and a number of the subject's own writings, including a small collection at Oxford, which he contributed to the book collector in 1956. It is a miscellany, which calls that remarkable presence, slow-moving yet active, slow-speaking yet witty, very vividly to mind. It took some time to realise how many books he had. His rooms were not light, and the array of shelf on shelf came into view by degrees. But gradually the line of small folios, all once owned by Narcissus Luttrell, and the little clusters of 17th-century verse, and all the highways and byways of four centuries of English literature lay plain before you, except those 
which ran over into other rooms. Young's, Night Thought 78, and Blair's, The Grave, 1805, both with engravings after Blake, were on the bottom shelf in the bedroom, and not very easy to get at. He was not a dressy person, and his books were rather like his clothes. Some of them were imperfect, and one or two, which caught the eye first, were bound in bright new Morocco, whose colours would have made an Eton Rambler's tie look drab. Hesperides, 1648, was in a particularly vivid jade green. Condition as such did not worry him. Often the state itself of a worn copy would suggest some interesting reflection. This, and other facts discovered in the course of reading every book he had, would be recorded in rather blunt pencil on the fly-leaves, and continued on odd sheets of paper if they ran out. These annotations were a truly remarkable record. He read and read, and in due course the perfect parallel, a certain attribution, would be remembered and written down. Moreover, his reading overflowed into his speech and writing. It grew out of him, quite naturally and unselfconsciously. By a fortunate chance, he was persuaded to annotate the quotations which bubble in and out of his Reply to the Toast of the College in 1957. There are sixty or so in some thirteen pages from Fanshawe's Horace, his favourite Galt, Henry Vaughan, the memoirs of Melville of Hall Hill, John Buchan, and, no fewer than three times, Lord de Tablet. And even these are a pale reflection of the richness of his conversation. He left a small but valuable memorial of this in the shape of his two anthologies, Diversions, 1941, and More Diversions, 1943. These were, as Mr. Fulford truly says, a solace and comfort for civilians and fighting men in the 1939 war, and remain, like all the best anthologies, a source of constant delight in their effortless originality of choice and happy juxtaposition. Occasionally, there is a sidelight on the source. Diversions contains that magnificent account of the duel by smoking in the Bagno at Algiers from Ferdinand, Count Fathom. Accordingly, we crammed half a dozen of tobacco pipes with sulphur, and setting foot to foot began to smoke, and kept a constant fire until McMorris dropped down. Then I threw away my pipe, and taking poor Murphy in my arms, What? Are you dead? said I. If you are dead, speak! No, by Jesus! cried he. I ain't dead, but I'm speechless. No doubt the appeal of this passage came from the real smoking match between his uncle, W.G. Wilkinson, and Henry Kingsley, author of that too little red novel, Geoffrey Hamlin, to decide who could outlast the other in the consumption of continuous pipes of Cavendish and strong Latakia. The consequent dead heat cured Wilkinson, but not Kingsley, of smoking for life, a habit inherited by his nephew. He had, too, that most endearing of all weaknesses, a passion for rescue work. He was quite happy to recall the third volume of Pride and Prejudice, 1813, which he bought for tuppence, although the others, which were to have followed at the same rate when found by the furniture dealer who had picked them up in a large lot, never came his way. There was also the bookseller who had never forgiven him for removing two worthless 17th-century folios 
because the door they were supporting fell over when they were taken away. And there was the time when he offered, in a style, as he said, nearer to the way of Sir Thomas Phillips, ten pounds for the public library of a Cotswold town for the trollops it contained, but could not come to terms about the encyclopedia. In fact, he bought the trollops later from the local dealer who managed to cope with it, encyclopedia and all. It is in these characteristics that you have the essence of the attraction of the small collection at Oxford. Other human beings he treated with a sort of blustering affection, curiously hard to capture in words, which never failed to gain the hearts of don or soldier, undergraduate, or indeed anyone he met. He dealt with his books the same way, stroking and pummeling them in a way which made the original board's enthusiast wince, but seemed somehow only an extension of his knowledge and love of them. It is this quality which neither richness nor fastidiousness nor taste alone can equal, which will continue to rejoice those who are fortunate enough in the years to come to discover in his books a memento of one of the warmest and most generous of collectors and scholars. That was Nicholas Barker's obituary of Cyril Wilkinson. It was taken from At First All Went Well, published in 2019 by Bernard Quaritch Limited. C.H. Wilkinson, A Small Collection at Oxford The invitation to say something about my books would provide a pleasant opportunity of boasting, if only the books would justify this. The purpose of all such accounts is, of course, charitable, but they will contain that element of self-satisfaction which is justified. To such charity I can only add a mite, and wish I were able to do more, but even a natural kindness to my own will not allow me to mistake a few bricks for a building. In acquiring books a man must of necessity observe degree and priority, and my place is not high, though I like to think I have a few plums, the fruit is small. I am as innocent of great treasures as was Browning's poet of having found Titians on his wall. Perhaps if I owned some of these curiosities, I might think differently about them. As it is, I look to other equally useful and not necessarily commoner things. I should welcome Urchert's Logopan Detectaison, and could easily find room for Vaughan's poems, 1646, or for Hannah's Nightingale, 1622. My ambition soars no higher, a man's grasp cannot exceed his reach, and I am flattered at being promoted to the rank of a collector. But perhaps even the last man in is technically a batsman, and like Brown entering heaven, I am happy to be but the last man and bring up the rear. As a boy, I wish to have my own copies of certain books, an ambition fostered by the existence of cheap reprints, which also introduced what I should not otherwise have known. Such discoveries are more exciting than what is stuffed under your nose. To me they still remain the proper editions for novels such as The Cloister and the Hearth. They are real association copies. The interests of contemporary literature were not wanting in those remote days. For instance, a friend who once thought, this book 
will give me the corrected proofs of the play to the owner of the manuscript of the Feast of Bacchus. But when I bought the manuscript at his sale, I was unable to get the proofs, and they have reached the Bodley. I can't tell you now what the moral of that is, as Alice's Duchess said. In general, however, my habits have approximated more closely to the placid ways of that picker-up of unconsidered trifles. The insectivorous plant which takes the small things chance sends than to the methods of mightier hunters roaring after their prey who chase and capture what they want. The resulting fare does not lack variety and may come on any wind that blows. It includes such things as Yeats, Sherman and Doya, a pleasantly shaped book, Lefanu's Ghost Stories, Dublin, 1851, Dr. James noticed it was still lacking in the British Museum 40 years ago, and the gap does not seem to have been filled. The original, unillustrated edition of Handley Cross, where alone can be found the episode of the rival stalls presided over by Mrs. Jorrocks and Mrs. Barnington. The Rural Minstrel by Patrick Bronte. Manuscript letters by Crabbe on the bisexual prevalence of smuggling and the preparations at Edinburgh for the King's visit in 1822, which led to the change from a district to the clan Tartan. Husband's miscellany of Johnsonian interest. Poems on several occasions, 1717, reprinted by Norman Alt, who then knew of four copies, as Pope's own miscellany. The first six parts of Reflections, Moral, Comical, Satirical, 1707-8, of which parts 5 and 6 are unrecorded in CBEL, the folio half-sheet of Prior's English Padlock, 1705, Tom Brown's Linda Mira, 1702, recently reprinted from a slightly imperfect copy in the Library of Minnesota, thought to be unique, the apparition of an archangel at the Old Bailey, 1681, and other unusual events, Accounts by John Ogilby of the King's Entertainment, 1681, and Coronation, 1685. The latter is mentioned, but no copy recorded, in Mr. McManaway's Checklist. 17th century claims for the equality of the sexes, the regicide, Tom Challoner's little joke about the strange finding out of Moses his tomb, which Aubrey says puts the wits of all the rabbis to work. The Complete Angler, 1655, not quite perfect. The Virtue of Sack and the High Commendation of Good Ale. Analia Dubrentia on Captain Dover's annual Olympic Games in the Cotswolds. Marlowe's, All Ovid's Elegies, Stubbs's Anatomy of Abuses, 1593, the second edition which is scarcer than the first, published in the same year, and itself the first to include the chapter on swearing, and other satisfactory passages typical of the author's all-embracing disapproval. And The Spoils of a Game of Golf, Berner's Golden Book, 1546. First folios may, for all I know, drift about the continent like transferable sterling, but the little things are not often to be found abroad. I have, however, brought back Fletcher's world encompassed from Florence, where Voynich would tell strange stories of his exile on the Russo-Chinese border, 
and William de Morgan explain his purchase of books of reference as necessary to one who had started scribbling in his old age. I have rescued Mrs. Bain on the Alps and retrieved Richard Burton from Holland. Ossian, naturally, was to be found in Germany. Everybody has his own choice among uncollected authors, men not altogether without sweet influences. Most of my authors belong to this class, though the name seems usually to be restricted to the 19th century. I take what I can of James Hogg, R.E. Landor, Praed, R.H. Horn, William Corey, William Barnes, R.S. Hawker, though the scarcity of some of his Morwenstow leaflets and little books, I have never had a chance of obtaining his first. Tendrils prevents him from being a promising subject for the collector. Though I do not much trouble about books which belong to famous men, I like anything which comes from the collections of Narcissus Lateral. Patience is now necessary to put them together in any number, and I began too late and have lacked enterprise. Luttrell's things fall into two classes, contemporary and earlier publications. His earliest possessions have a signature and a rough date of acquisition. The 1673 Milton, later Ritson's, is marked 1678 over 9. Plots Oxfordshire, 1677, 1681 over 0. Slatia's Pallii Albion, 1621, was bought in 1693 after Luttrell had obtained his monogram, and 1697 is written below the monogram in the four volumes of Purchase's Pilgrim, 1625, and in his pilgrimage, 1626. But Luttrell had long since begun to give the exact date on contemporary publications. A volume of 112 folio poetical pieces, 1679-81, to 81, which includes the 1681 Marvel, and most of the single pieces of Rochester, was one of five or six volumes. They cannot all remain intact. Bound for James Bindley. I should have taken the chance of getting another of these. It is now in the Clark Library in California. But economy unfortunately prevailed. For some reason connected with the ink or the paper... The dates on over 100 prose pieces belonging to 1688-9 are growing faint. Luttrell lived till 1732, but I have nothing dated after January 1723. If certain kindly Scots, the adjective may have been added to the ballad by Hogg, a Scot, needed any additional advertisement, it would be given by their background. Robert Ferguson is the hopeful Bard of Old Rike, as William Taylor called him, already, in Scott's poem 1787, hailing Burns as Ferguson's successor. Walter Scott, now considered dull by those who have not read him, has all Scotland behind him. John Galt travelled far and wrote much, but his hand did not forget her cunning when, in his mirth, he preferred his own parts and people on the banks of the Clyde. Like Goldsmith on the famous occasion, Galt has his admirers, but few of them can have his first Scottish novel, Glenfell, 1820, nor, I think, has any great library in this country. More curious is the cheaply produced Life of Peden, 1726, by that singular worthy Peter Walker. In the fourth volume of Midlothian, Scott gives the name more correctly as Patrick, Walker is quoted by Old Mortality, for whom he furnished features, 
he provided Deuce David Deans with some of his more picturesque language. He was used in Catriona by Stevenson, who said his own style was from the covenanting writers. Crockett shivered as he read about the killing of John Brown. Even more singular was the self-centred Thomas Urquhart of Cromarty, who triumphantly translated Rabelais from a French he did not altogether understand into an English he did not speak. My copy of The Jewel, a book in which author and printer strove who should compose fastest, was Lord's, probably that which he showed to Horace Walpole. The Trisotetris has the bookplate of an Urquhart of Meldrum, Epigrams has two states of the engraving, and, inserted by Bindley or a later owner, the first state of the engraving of Urquhart on Mount Helicon probably intended for his unpublished epigrams, which have now left the country. I know of no other copy of this first state, though I have looked for it. The example at Craigston Castle has disappeared. There are many 18th-century collections of Scottish verse from Watson onwards, but the original edition of one of the more important, Hurd's Scots Songs, 1769, is, curiously enough, very scarce. So is the Charmer, 1749, though the National Library of Scotland has an imperfect copy. It is not known in what edition Dr. Johnson read a good deal at Captain Maclean's. Albania, 1737, is not as uncommon as its editor, Leyden, thought when he reprinted Beattie's copy, believing it to be unique. The poem was a favourite with Scott, who misquotes it at the end of his introduction to the minstrelsy. Satchels did not print many above twelve-score copies of his book on the name of Scott, 1688, but that is unlikely to have been read out of existence. The foolish press ballads may have met such a fate. Motherwell, in 1827, was unable to find Gil Morris till David Lang showed him a copy. Child had similar difficulties and never saw the first printed edition of Edom of Gordon, 1755, and chapbook songs and prose pieces printed at Edinburgh, Glasgow, Falkirk and Newton Stewart furnish good but perishable evidence of popularity. There are books, I have a few of them, for which any collection is the better. Norris and Goldsmith hint at the disadvantage of large folios, though these lend an air of dignity to the shelves. The size is proper for Topsail on Beasts and Serpents, and for Bloom's Gentleman's Recreation, for the splendid Ashendine Press Mallory, and perhaps for the Journal of the Robust George Fox, or for Camden. The second folio of Shakespeare, even with a facsimile title, and the 1647 Beaumont and Fletcher are not amiss, but the vast folio of Prior is absurd, and a large size is generally uncomfortable. Single plays or poems by Dryden, Pope, Swift, etc. are another matter, as are certain periodicals such as The Two Spectators, and the small folios are pleasant. Young's Diana, Fairfax's Tasso, Daniel's Works, Florio's Montaigne, Chapman's Homer, Sandy's Ovid, the Walter Poet's works, and so forth. More desirable, perhaps, are the Decameron, with both volumes dated 1620, a good copy of Britannia's Pastorals, 1616, which compensates for a bad copy of the first part, 1613, and Benlow's 
Theophila with nearly all the original and the supplementary plates. Smaller books can lend an air of respectability. I have few of the 16th century, though Spencer's Colin Clout, 1595, and The Fairy Queen, 1590-96, help to do this. So in their own ways, Will Prynne's attacks on health drinking and love locks, and his histriomastics, Shelton's Don Quixote, 1620, that popular guidebook, hard to come by, in 1687, according to Winstanley, Coriat's Crudities, which must be supplemented by Terry's Voyage to East India, as Terry tells of Coriat and his last days in India. Lithgow, Esquimeling, Shelvock, magnificently uncut, the history of Pirates, identified as Defoe's by Professor Moore, from which Stevenson had the names of Israel Hands and Benjamin Gunn. In the Johnson folio of 1736, it is Gunn with only one N. Others by Defoe. Howell's Letters, Sir Thomas Brown, Traherne's Christian Ethics, Paradise Lost with a late title but its own bibliographical peculiarities, some miscellanies from Dryden onwards, including Durfee's five volumes called Songs Complete, Boswell's Johnson, White Selborne, Buick's Birds with the unrivaled woodcuts, Lyrical Ballads, 1798 and 1800, and others by Wordsworth and Coleridge, Keats, Endymion and Lamia, a few volumes of Shelley, a neat row of Matthew Arnold, which of course makes necessary Glanville's vanity of dogmatising, and some novels by Fielding, Smollett, Stern, Mrs. Ratcliffe, Maturin Beckford, and, most necessary to be read as he first appeared, Peacock. Some 120 plays of the 17th century, a third of them printed before 1660, are too thin unless bound in volumes for the purposes of dignity. The character books are too small, Earl in his first complete edition, Minshall, Stevens, Brathwaite, Lupton, Fleckner. The smallest is Francis Lenton's. Five editions of it, mine is the fourth, seem to exist in a total of six or seven copies. The characters printed in folio are mostly later, that of the London Mob, 1710, was the only copy known to Mr. Greenough. Rogue Books Garcia's The Son of the Rogue, 1638, is a variant, not in STC. Lives of Highwaymen and even Kirkman's Unlucky Citizen are wanting in decorum and shall not be further mentioned, though it is urged in the life of Captain Macheath, 1728, that the gentleman has been extremely misrepresented in the beggar's opera and was never charged with perfidy to a woman. The verse of the 17th century was often printed in small books and the size of a book has much to do with its chances of survival. I have some six or seven dozen of these poets and versifiers. There are the historians, mostly of the 1630s, Beaumont, Buck, May, Hubert, Allen, who indicate the continuance of that taste for which Daniel and Drayton had catered, and on which, though of late so out of fashion on the stage, Ford relied when he wrote Perkin Warbeck. 
the design of those who describe contemporary events, Wither or Mercer or John Tabor, was, as the last said of his own account of the events of 1666, often better than their verse. Moralists are in danger of bestowing many hours in talk and yet utter but few words, as a pamphlet of 1647 says when disqualifying Humphrey Mill as judge in a literary case. There are the storytellers, Marmion, Whiting, Kynaston, Baron, Chamberlain, possibly the dedication copy, Chalkhill, who may have been improved by Walton, Davenant and Harrington of the Grecian story. There are also first editions of the obvious poets. Carew, Suckling, Lovelace, Randolph, Cartwright, Herrick, not all the books should be, Lord Herbert in a royal binding, Cocaine, Corbett, King, who cannot have sold very fast, as his 1657 volume was reissued with editions in 1664 and without them in 1700 as Ben Jonson's poems. The title is damaged in my copy, but there are a few examples of this issue. The sheets of the 1687 Cleveland did not sell for an even longer time, as they were reissued with a new title in 1742, a fact which does not seem to have been noticed. In Jenkins' Amorea, 1661, Thorne Drury noted his belief that this is the scarcest book of the period. He no doubt knew the BM copy, but not the finer one in the library of All Souls College. Coppinger's Poems, 1682, is also scarce. Coppinger, an interesting man, was hanged in 1695 for clipping and robbery, and his skeleton was exhibited, the anatomical flower of Physicians' College. Another dishonest man put out the spurious second part of Hudibras in 1663, and the irritated butler introduced the writer as Watchum. The notorious idiot, however, anticipated Mr. Jorrocks with his cheese to fill up chinks. Some of these little books, Heath and Hall and Hammond and Collop, are now almost unobtainable, but a longer list of not very distinguished names would be pointless. I may add collections of verse, especially various drolleries, chronicles of the age they were made in, as Marmion's Antiquary puts it, Oxford, Westminster, Covent Garden, London, Hoban, Merry Drollery, and two of the collections called Wit and Drollery. Matthew Stevenson's poems was later reissued as Norfolk drollery, but this does not qualify as a drollery, nor it may be does folly in print. But naps upon Parnassus, Le Prince d'Amour, mock songs and joking poems, perhaps the one copy in which the frontispiece survives, The Triumph of Wit, 1688, possibly the only copy in this country, and of some interest in connection with Rochester, the Canting Academy in the edition of 1674, which is equally rare, and half a dozen others of the same sort may be allowed to do so. Those little books of the 17th century represent the very sea mark of my utmost sale. If the draft they offer is not always heady, it is preferable, as Landor's Pericles knew, to drink even water from a silver cup. Often there is no choice. They fill a place, whatever that may be, and Shakespeare's king claimed to do no more. 
We sometimes read that a man has or has not collected wisely, but the writer cannot know anything about it. The ambition fulfills itself in many ways. Wisdom is not to be found in an attempt to conform to someone else's opinions or in pretending to see with what may be his opened eyes, but in the satisfaction of individual tastes and interests. I am the only possible judge of the wisdom of my choice. To others it may seem foolish, but if I again had my world as in my time, like Job's fool, I would return to my folly with, I hope, a little more enterprise. Even so, I should no doubt have occasion enough to lament lost opportunities and to recognize the now obvious truth, time was. Tune in next week for another Book Collector podcast. And in the meantime, visit thebookcollector.co.uk to read online articles, view booksellers' catalogues, and subscribe to our journal. It's less than the price of a Netflix subscription and far more valuable. Receive four beautiful quarterly issues, plus get access to our entire digital archive. 70 years of erudite articles, illustrations, reviews, news, obituaries, auction reports, and more. Everything you could want to know about book collecting. Whether you're researching, learning, or just browsing for fun, it's the place to go. Visit thebookcollector.co.uk today.